powerful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. In the NFL, there is the Rooney Rule, which is intended to increase hiring of minority coaches and others in professional football. No such rule exists in terms of hiring in Division I athletics, which has an abysmal record when it comes to hiring people of color for positions as coaches and administrators and so forth. I should say there was no such rule. Now there is such a rule that is supposed to increase the hiring of people of color in important positions in college sports. In one conference in particular, the West Coast Conference, which has established what it is calling the Russell Rule, a hiring commitment named after Bill Russell, who of course played at the University of San Francisco in the 1950s, winning the NCAA championship there. And the University of San Francisco is a member of the West Coast Conference. It is a pleasure now to be joined again on The Sporting Life by the commissioner of the WCC, Gloria Navarez. Gloria, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So Gloria, um, the Russell Rule as I said, you're calling it. Where did this idea come from? We, we have an EDI, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, that had been established in 2019, and they had a package of initiatives coming through our governance system. However, following the murder of George Floyd, the stars aligned for us um, as far as timing because we just happened to have our annual governance meetings the week after. And as you know, many, many folks put out very heartfelt, meaningful statements of support. But our presidents came together and they said they really wanted something that promoted meaningful and lasting change. And that's where the idea of getting a hiring commitment in our league began. And then it honestly was maybe a two, two and a half month effort to craft and adopt um, our Russell Rule. How will the Russell rule change hiring? How will it make it um, uh, officially a part of the process that when you are seeking candidates for certain positions, you have to take into consideration, uh, you, you have to have finalists, I believe, under the rule who are from underrepresented communities? Correct. And this is now part of our WCC handbook and constitution. Um, so it'll live on beyond all of us. It would take a supermajority of a president's vote to to change it or to remove it. Uh, not that anyone's asked about that, but um, and it requires that for all full time, um, well, actually, athletic director, athletic department, senior staff, head coaches, and full time assistant coaches, you have to have a member of a traditionally unrepresented community in the final candidate pool. So. You know, our hope is, in addition to, you know, vetting out some really strong candidates, it also opens the pipeline. I mean, there's so much opportunity from just being in the finalist candidate pool, getting exposure to decision makers, prepping yourself for how to interview. Just the repetition of being in those candidate pools is so helpful. 
to folks aspiring to those positions. We're speaking with Gloria Navarez. She is the commissioner of the West Coast Conference, which, as you've been hearing, is instituting a new rule um, which reflects its commitment to hiring uh, more diverse coaches, administrators, and you know, when we think about the American university, the American higher education system, in some ways we think of them as bastions of progressivism. But when it comes to sports, why is the record so abysmal when it comes to hiring of minorities uh, uh, in sports departments as coaches? I, I wish I had an answer to that question. Our hope is that this policy helps uh, that process. And, you know, sports hiring sometimes just happen at the worst time or happen very quickly. Um, I do think search firms have, have helped diversify the process and become intentional, intentional about um, final candidates pools. But, you know, up and down the ranks of an athletic department, it, you know, assistant coaches in some of the smaller sports or more the niche sports, it, it just happens, you know, it happens so quickly or maybe the budget or the national type search isn't conducted like it would be for a head coach of your uh, football or basketball program. So um, our, our hope is that this really brings intention to the process at all levels. Again, we're speaking with Gloria Navarre. She's the first Latinx Division One commissioner. She is the commissioner of the West Coast Conference, instituting a Bill Russell rule reflecting its hiring commitment in terms of getting um, more minorities hired as coaches and beyond just coaching as well. This, this goes to uh, administrative jobs as well. Is that right, Gloria? Correct. So it's um, all athletic department senior staff members. So your senior associate athletic directors in some departments, they'd be uh, associate athletic directors, but defined by the department as your senior management team. Gloria, at this time, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, um, you know, so many of your schools are um, in California. Uh, most of them are actually on the West Coast. Uh, we've seen a resurgence. We've seen spikes in the coronavirus in California. We've seen some conferences saying at this point that sports should not take place at all on campus this fall. Where does the WCC stand now in terms of fall sports? And I know you're not a football conference, although two of your member schools do play football. So we, we are all about fall sports and trying to solve that dilemma right now. You know, we are a league that vies for national titles in basically all of our sports. Um, so it's very important to us not to prematurely foreclose that opportunity, but, you know, we're still looking for a way to safely conduct um, fall competition. I mean, there's still a lot more questions than answers. Schools are in the process of, making determinations about general student populations, whether they're coming back or going online. So, you know, we're still um, in the working through it, looking for answers mode. We, we don't yet have a green light idea that would allow us uh, to safely conduct fall sports. But again, um, we don't want to foreclose that opportunity because so many of our athletes it's really important to, and the reason they picked WCC schools was to vie for those national titles. Philosophically, Gloria, how do you feel about athletes being on campus if the general school population is not? Obviously, in some ways, it would be safer because there are fewer people there. But if you're going to bring 
athletes onto campus. We talked about this last week on the show with Chris Hinton, who's leading the Parents Alliance of, of football players in the country, a former NFL player. How do you feel about just athletes being around? Yeah, you know, philosophically, I, I feel good about that because now, again, each athlete, each person has to make their own individual value assessment. I mean, you don't know who might have a history of higher risk than others. You can't just assume that because they're all in the same age group and they're healthy Division I college athletes that they don't have something in their background or history that makes them a little bit more open or susceptible to COVID. So the individual, you know, decision-making aside, in general, I feel, you know, the data has shown, the NCAA put out a study that the, the mental stress on all students, but even more so on student-athletes, of being in shelter in place, away from their teams, away from their campuses, is increasing. And as well as there's a large population of student-athletes that don't have access to perhaps proper nutrition for Division One training, uh, strong medical care, or even appropriate workout facilities. And the data shows that the population that's more disadvantaged are our African-American student-athletes. So in some situations, coming back to the campus provides those three major services and a bubble of safety that is a little bit more controlled than some might have in their home environment. Gloria Navarez is the commissioner of the West Coast Conference, which has just instituted the Russell Rule to assure that there are diverse finalists for all coaching and administrative jobs in the sports departments in its schools. Glory, it's a pleasure having you back here on The Sporting Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate your work. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In the years just before World War II, Alice Marble was a marvel. She was the most successful woman in tennis. She won five Grand Slam singles titles. She won, I think it's 18 Grand Slam titles overall. And her life was a subject of fascination for so many beyond sports fans. A life that continues to be, in the words of her biographer Robert Weintraub, shrouded in mystery, he is the author of the new book, The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. And it's a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life, Robert Weintraub. Robert, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate being on your show. For people who, who uh, were not around um, to experience the heights of her fame and her achievements, who was Alice Marble? Yeah, she was unquestionably the greatest uh, tennis player, female tennis player before the war. And more than that, she was really a transformative figure in women's tennis. There was an era before she came around, which was mostly baseline play by women wearing calf-length skirts and kind of very dainty in their approach. Suzanne Langlin. Suzanne Langlin, exactly, and uh, Helen Wills Moody. And then uh, Alice came on and put on a pair of shorts, which was scandalous when she first did it. And then everybody realized, hey, why aren't we playing shorts? That makes a lot of sense. And Alice certainly looked very good in those shorts, which uh, became the public uh, fascination uh, beyond just her play. And, you know, she really revolutionized the sport with her power and speed and athletic style of play, much like uh, Martina Navratilova or Steffi Graf would later. And, you know, if it wasn't for World War II, 
she certainly would have won a host more championships than just the 18 that she did win in major titles, which of course counts doubles and probably would be a much more remembered figure than she was as it turned out. But because of the war and also because of a two year lapse where she suffered from tuberculosis and then came back to win the U S nationals. Now the U S open, uh, you know, she really uh, lost a, a sizable portion of her career in much the way, uh, you know, a Ted Williams did to war, or, you know, any of the other ballplayer figures that we're familiar with. And, Unlike so many of the stars of the sport at that time, she was not born into privilege, not even close. How did she become uh, so proficient at the game, which was a country club game almost exclusively then? No question. And she did it by uh, force of will, mainly. Uh, she was you know, born into a not very uh, well-off family. And then when her father died at age seven, uh, they were particularly uh, struck in poverty. She lived in San Francisco and Really learned the game self-taught at the uh, Golden Gate Park courts, which were these weather-beaten cement courts that really, you know, were just there for the public's use and not to uh, uh, engender future champions. But as you say, because she was say, brought up under and learned the game under such hardships, it really became an advantage for her because of her uh, powerful force of will married with her incredible talent. When it came time to take on the sort of privileged country club elite type players who you know the sport was suffused by in those days she had a great advantage she had a certainly a mental advantage over most of them and incredible physical talent married to it made her virtually unstoppable when she was at her peak uh, only really she stopped herself when she lost most matches and you know is is a really a through line of her life which was that she kept coming up against these massive travails on and off the court uh, physically mentally emotionally and rebounding to overcome them and it's really uh something that I came to admire more and more as I, as I wrote the book and learned more about her life. Yeah, she had tuberculosis. We're speaking with Robert Weintraub about his new book, The Divine Miss Marble, Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery. And one of the most interesting things here, and it's more than a thing, it's a major component, of course, of the Alice Marble story. And, and she wrote about this um, just before her death, but her exploits um, in World War II. And as her biographer, it's been something of a challenge, I understand, and you've written to confirm the things she wrote. And it kind of reminds me of um, the Chuck Barris book, uh, the late Chuck Barris, who wrote the book where he said he was a CIA agent, but of course they disavowed any knowledge. Um, it, it, it's not a dissimilar situation with Alice Marble. Yeah, I, you know, as the writer of this book, I had to insert myself as sort of an amateur detective much more than I had planned to when I first wrote it, because so much of what she wrote about, and in this case, we're talking about saying that she was uh, an Allied agent in World War II who was sent on assignment to reconnect with a former lover who was a Swiss banker turned launderer of Nazi gold and ill-gotten booty, uh, and then wound up fleeing from him and shot in the back by a Russian double agent. Just this incredible story that, you know, it the end of the day had just enough of a patent of plausibility to be true but most of the facts are either disprovable or, or not able to be proven by the uh, surviving record which is unfortunate and you know I, I had to put on my uh, my Sherlock Holmes hat there a deer stalker and try and figure out what exactly was true what wasn't true what was maybe you walk a thin line between you know sort of wanting to you know shine a light on this incredible woman and and give all of her plaudits their, their proper due. And also, you know, you want to separate the fact from the fiction and not just repeat what may be embellished in her memoir, which was written very late in her life and, and was really part of sort of uh, 
here's what I did and I shouldn't be forgotten kind of uh, end days with her. You remember she didn't make much money in her life and she kind of lived on the, on the margins really for the last couple of decades of her life. And I, she always liked to put on a show and give the reader or the fan what they wanted. And I think that uh, extended to her memoir in, in a few many ways. It's so interesting though, Robert, because here is someone who had a life of such remarkable achievement. <laughs> Exactly. And, and who was part of this remarkable circle uh, in the early golden age or the first golden age of Hollywood, uh, who knew everybody. Uh, William Randolph Hearst down to, you know, Clark Gable or up to Clark Gable, however you want to <laughs> characterize it. Um, why would she feel the need to embellish anything? It's, you know, one of the mysteries I tried to uncover, and there's several kind of underlying psychological reasons. And I, as I alluded to, part of it, I think, was just her desire and determination uh, to make her life, you know, kind of worth something and mean something, which she thought was worth something, not necessarily the fame that she achieved on the court or, you know, being a, a friend of these incredibly famous people. You know, at the end of the day, she was, you know, feted by all these great stars and, and welcome in their homes, but she had no money herself. You know, she couldn't even open a bank account for much of her life. So, and that extended to her, her, later days when she was actually writing the memoir and was figuring, you know, for all I accomplished, maybe it's not really enough in my mind, at least. And uh, it's maybe hard for us to look back on it that way and, and uh, sort of understand where she's coming from. But, you know, in her mind, she felt the need to really, you know, go that extra mile and to, uh, like I say, maybe sell a few extra books <laughs> and to get people and to remember the name Alice Marble the way it should have been originally instead of, you know, the way it was when she wrote the book, which was dimly forgotten even by that point. Now, of course, she's totally in the uh, dustbin of history, and I hope to, to pull her out and give her her proper place, you know, warts and all, and for everything that she accomplished, as you mentioned. And hopefully, uh, speaking of selling books, we sell some books as well. Uh, the, new, the new book about the remarkable life and career of one of the great figures in American sport is The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery by Robert Weintraub. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Major League Baseball has been around for 150 years. 20,000 men have played in the big leagues. Only one... The superb Cleveland shortstop Ray Chapman has died playing the game. His skull fractured by a fastball on August 16, 1920 at the Polo Grounds in Upper Manhattan. 100 years ago next week. The pitcher was Carl Mays of the Yankees, one of the best pitchers of his era. The whole story is told in a book that was written more than 30 years ago by Mike Sowell. The title of the book is The Pitch That Killed, and Mr. Sowell joins us now. Mike, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be on, Jeremy. Well, I, look, I know it's been a long time since you wrote that book, and it's just one of many books that you've written, um, baseball history books among them. Uh, but the anniversary, as we said, is coming up. For our audience, for people who aren't familiar with the story, um, set the scene for us. Who was Ray Chapman? Well, Ray Chapman was a, a great shortstop, uh, probably the best shortstop in baseball, uh, at the time, he had been playing about eight years in Cleveland. He was only 29 years old. Uh, he still holds uh, some major league records, or at least one, on most sacrifice hits in a season. 
Um, so he, he was a great player, fastest player in the game at the time, very cheerful player, a flashy fielder, very popular among not just his teammates, but all of baseball, you know, even the opponents liked him. And on, uh, they were battling to win their first pennant in 1920. They'd never had a winning or a championship team before. And uh, the, the Indians played late in the season. They had a, or in August, they had a crucial series against the Yankees in New York. And it was a three team race the uh, Indians, Yankees, and defending champion Chicago White Sox, uh, you know, who later would be tarnished by the revelations of the scandal of the 1919 World Series. So it was a critical game. And, um, on the day of the beaning, the uh, pitcher for the Yankees, Carl Mays, was uh, he was one of the best pitchers in, in baseball at that time. He was an outstanding man, and these two guys had a history. You know, they'd kind of uh, they both came from poor backgrounds, born the same year, within 50 miles of each other, but they were quite different. Uh, Mays was a very unpopular player, even among his own teammates. Uh, he and Babe Ruth especially did not get along. And this was Babe Ruth's first season with the Yankees, but they had been teammates with the Red Sox as well. Right. They they had come up with the Red Sox. In fact, they, they came up on the same day, shared the, a train ride up to uh, New York. I mean, to Boston. Well, I guess they were going to New York, but anyway, they, they came up together and... Um, but they, they didn't clash. You know, Ruth was a, a jovial, outgoing fellow, liked to have a good time. Mays described as a very dour, kind of a tight or thin-lipped guy. Um, and he had a reputation for throwing at hitters. He he would frequently lead the league and hit batsmen. But uh, he also was unique in that he threw underhanded. He, he had uh, hurt his arm in the minor league, so he uh, switched to – submarine-style pitching, but unlike most pitchers who throw in the submarine style or the underhand style, Mays was still a power pitcher. And uh, Ray Chapman, I mean, um, Bill James, the great baseball historian, has said that uh, Mays was the only power pitcher among the uh, submarine pitchers. So with this unusual delivery, he was very tough for hitters when they came up to face him. And this was a critical game. May started for the Yankees. Chapman was leading the Indians. And the, the, these two players, you know, from a common background, very diverse personalities, but, uh, you know, they, you know, that day would leave both of them, you know, with tragic consequences. Uh, one man lost his life and, the other would forever be haunted by throwing that pitch that killed Ray Chapman. We're speaking with Mike Sowell, whose book, The Pitch That Killed, documents what happened on August 16th, 1920, at the Polo Grounds, the only on-field fatality in Major League Baseball history. So it's an afternoon game, obviously. There were no night games at that point. Uh, the Yankees are playing at the Polo Grounds. Yankee Stadium would not open for another two seasons. What happened? Well, it had had been raining, kind of a light rain, early in the day and and at the first part of the game. But in the uh, fourth inning, Chapman came up. He had already batted twice in the game. So he was the leadoff hitter. Uh, The Indians had the lead. It was a close game. 
and the rain had stopped, so there was no rain happening. But uh, on this particular pitch, when when it came in, for some reason, it, it came in uh, inside. It's a little bit high and inside, and coming from an unusual angle, you're coming from underground. And the Yankee catcher, Muddy Rule, said he always had trouble with Carl Mays' pitches because he really couldn't tell always where they were going because they took unusual shoots and turns. And Chapman liked to crowd the plate, but he rarely was hit by a pitch. In fact, uh, a baseball book came out that day with uh, how to play baseball, and Chapman was used as the ideal batting stance at the plate. But anyway, for some reason on this pitch, Chapman froze. He did not move. Ball was coming to his head, and it hit him with such force in the side of the head, you know, on his temple, left side, that the, the ball, there was a loud crack, and the ball actually rebounded out to the pitcher's mouth where Mays fielded it. And thinking it was a bunt, he turned and threw to first base where Wally Pipp, first baseman, caught the ball got ready to throw it around the infield, looked toward the plate, and he saw that Chapman was sinking to the ground and blood coming out of his head. And, uh, you know, medical help was immediately called to the scene. They used ice on Chapman's uh, head to uh, revive him so he didn't lose consciousness. And he was led off the field. He went to the clubhouse or the locker room, and then taken to the hospital. And uh, he went underwent surgery that night, and he didn't survive, and he died early the following morning. 4.40 a.m. on August 17th, we're speaking with Mike Sowell about the pitch that killed his book about the death of Ray Chapman in 1920, the only on-field fatality in Major League Baseball history. What was the reaction in the world of baseball and beyond um, to the news that Ray Chapman, this this outstanding uh, player, um, 29 years old, one of the best in the game, had died in the field of play, had died as a result of, of being hit by a pitch, I should say. Well, it, it was uh, kind of uh, uh, interesting because uh, several of the other baseball teams were off that day, and some of the players were in that area. So there were quite a few players from opposing teams who were at the game and who witnessed this accident or this beaming. And then, of course, the controversy switched to Carl Mays. So in addition to the grief over Chapman, there was quite a reaction against Mays. And many of the players were calling for Mays to be banned from baseball. Uh, There were uh, cries for him to be prosecuted for this. And... um, this had not happened before. You know, it was the first fatality in Major League history, and they'd had some um, fatal beanings in the minor leagues, very few, but only one of them, to my knowledge, resulted in, in the, the pitcher having to go to court to defend himself, you know, actually being charged, but those the charges were dropped. But in this case, you know, the, the players were talking about boycotting Mays, and so it was quite an an uproar. And of course, for Cleveland, they've lost one of their best players. They've lost their outstanding shortstop. So there was concern about whether they could uh, still remain in the pennant race. 
and they fell back immediately. You know, they, they kind of went into a slump. Uh, but eventually, the, the Chapman's backup on the team was a light-hitting shortstop who was pressed into the starting role. He got hurt. So out of desperation, the Indians called up a, a 20-year-old minor leaguer named Joe Sewell, who came in. And Sewell had never been uh, to a big city before, never seen a major league game, understandably quite nervous. But to calm his nerves, he decided that when he put on the Cleveland uniform, he would be Ray Chapman reincarnated. And interestingly, Sewell's, uh, the rest of the season, Sewell played exactly like Chapman. He continued Ray Chapman's batting statistics and his uh, good play in the field and led the Indians to the the World Series, which they defeated uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so they became the world champions for the first time in history. Some of the other fallout, you know, the the talk of a boycott soon died down because, uh, you know, the American League president wasn't going to allow that. But the, the hard feelings against Mays carried on for actually for the rest of his life. We're speaking with Mike Sowell, the baseball writer and historian about his book, The Pitch That Killed. It was a hundred years ago next week that Ray Chapman died after being struck in the head by a fastball thrown by the aforementioned Carl Mays. And, um, you know, Mike, I was thinking about Ray Chapman this week. I actually did a commentary about it and I read some portions of your book, um, you know, when we saw Joe Kelly of the Dodgers throwing near Alex Bregman, ball rocketing near him, a 3-0 fastball, uh, we see message pitches all the time. We don't know exactly, you know, um, you know the level of intent with each specific pitch, but uh, of course they're batting helmets now, but pitchers are throwing so much harder than even the great Carl Mays threw back then. When you think about it, and we've seen other players um, who've been hurt, not fatally so in the major leagues, by pitch balls and, and how dangerous it can be. I was wondering, you know, as someone, um, you live in Oklahoma, next state over from where the Astros were, and they seem to be targets this year uh, based on what happened in the World Series or, or in the regular season in 2017. When you think about um, pitchers throwing at hitters, what, what what are the, your thoughts about it? Well, obviously, you know, I, I think I, I really don't understand those pitchers doing that. I, I think it's um, it's not a, a a good reflection on the character of pitchers like Joe Kelly because you know it's one thing to throw at a batter with the intention to move him off the plate or to retaliate, as they like to say, but uh, to do that, you don't throw up by a guy's head. And it seemed to me on the Joe Kelly thing, those balls were coming in, they they were coming in high. So even though players have batting helmets today, there's always the possibility you've got an unprotected area in your face that could get hit. And we've seen that happen with tragic results. So, you know, like Tony Conigliaro, uh, his career was pretty much ruined by, you know, being hit by a pitch. Dickie Thon suffered a gruesome injury. The great Astros infielder. Yeah, well, and, you know, when you ask about my reflection of watching them throwing at the Astros, uh, I grew up in Houston. So, you know, I, I followed the Astros or the team from their inception as the Colt 45. So, yeah, that bothers me. Um, 
And and what happened in the Chapman case with Mays beating Chapman, the, it's really surprising. Not only did the players not wear helmets or any kind of protective headgear at that time, but it took almost 30 years before they started to, to a few players would wear them. And in the 1950s, you know, it finally became mandated to have headgear, but it was just those little wraparound helmets that they wore in the 50s and into the 60s. I remember wearing those as a kid playing baseball. But um, the, the the fact that it took that long, it, it's always amazed me that, you know, baseball could be that lax and the players that opposed to the, the consequences of being hit, you know, by the, the ball. And actually, I think it's a miracle that Ray Chapman was – the only player in the major leagues to be hit and killed in a game. Mike, now that um, uh, the 100th anniversary of this sad occasion, the sad event is upon us, well, how do you think Ray Chapman should be remembered? How do you think his he should be commemorated? Well, I, I think, first of all, he should be remembered uh, by baseball fans, and I'm glad to see that he is getting more recognition now because – uh, when I first researched this book in the 1980s, it, I was amazed at how quickly this was forgotten among baseball writers and people. There had been nothing written about it. There are very little written about it. Um, very, you know, it, it kind of it happened. There was a lot of talk, a huge reaction at the time because of Chapman's popularity. But then it became kind of overlooked, and we you didn't hear much about it. It, it was really not a big, it's really more like an asterisk in baseball history. But I think Chapman should be remembered because he, he was a, he was a great player. He was a hall of fame caliber player who had, he continued playing. He, he would easily would have been in the hall of fame because he had a superior record to some other hall of fame shortstops. And um, he just didn't get to complete his career. So, uh, you know, I think uh, in that regard, Carl Mays also is a victim of that because there's quite a, you know, the, the big controversy at the time was, was Carl Mays throwing at Chapman? Was he, did he intend to hit him? You know, Mays always claimed he didn't. And how can anyone know what Mays' intention really was? Because he did throw an unusual ball. He He dipped so low when he would pitch that on occasion his knuckles would scrape the ra- the ground. Mm. So he's and he's throwing hard, and the ball is coming from the ground and is coming up toward the hitters, toward home plate, and it's taking unusual turns. the The catcher Muddy Rule said he never knew which way the ball was going to turn, and he don't know, doesn't know how he ever caught one of Mason's pitches. So uh, I think both, and it's kind of ironic. I think both men were victims of that pitch. It's a sad story and a fascinating story so well told by Mike Sowell in his book, The Pitch That Killed, which isn't just about that moment, but about the season as well. And baseball at that time in the immediate post-World War One era, it happens to be as well the season that Babe Ruth changed the game forever, belting 54 home runs in his first season playing for the Yankees, who at that time were playing at the Polo Grounds in Upper Manhattan. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate uh, your insights and, and 
Thank you for writing this book 30 years ago. Well, you're, uh, you're welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. And I'd like to mention very quickly that um, the book still is in publication. So I've been uh, really happy with that. It stayed in publication. And now there is um, talk about there's some interest um, in a movie or a documentary on this. So the, the book actually has been optioned out and there uh, is uh, come aboard productions is is looking at it, and they've got a producer lined up. So, uh, if you want more information on the, you know, the the possible movie, go to comeaboardproductions.com, or um, you can go to Summer Game Books, order the book. It's a Kindle book. It's also available in the print edition. Well, we wish you the best of luck with the film, Mike Sowell, the author of The Pitch That Killed. Mike, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.